the Sunday Sermons Podcast. Have any of you guys ever hit a guardrail? I have. It wasn't fun. Um, It was a long time ago. My three oldest boys were in elementary school. I was taking them to school. We went around a steep curve that had, well, it even had warning signs and everything, but we hydroplaned and smacked that guardrail. And at the time, it was just really irritating and scary and a bunch of other things. I really resented the guardrail. But looking back, I'm thankful because even though I had to repair my car and the boys were scared to ride to school for a couple weeks and a few things like that, it it probably protected me and my boys from stuff that I can't even imagine that could have happened if we would have just sailed off the road and off into the woods and down a ditch. And it also, here's the main thing, hear me on this because this is where we're going this morning. It kept us on track. Because of that guardrail, we... We still got to school on time. I got to work on time a few minutes after that. We, we actually just kept on track. We got where we needed to go. And when we think of God's moral boundaries, we tend to think of them in terms of fences or walls, that God's trying to keep us inside of something and maybe we resent that. Or he's trying to keep somebody out, which is not ever really the case, but he does say these things don't come in my territory. But I I think a much better and more biblical kind of a metaphor for God's moral boundaries would be guardrails. They they, they keep you on track. He knows it's not so much about how much he hates the ditch in the woods as much as he really wants you to stay on the road and get where you need to go. Does that make sense? And, and, and so if we can keep that in the back of our minds, in the, in the deepest part of our hearts, as we look through God's moral boundaries, it, it helps a little bit. Um, another thing that I, I think about when I think about God's moral boundaries, and uh, this is kind of just laying the foundation of this new series we're starting this morning. So bear with me on the laying the foundation part. But do you guys like warning labels? Do you like to like read them for entertainment? I I do. I love reading the back of shampoo bottles and it says not to be taken orally. And you just know that there's a, there's a story somewhere, somebody, somehow or another. The other day I bought some peanuts and it's a plastic bag of peanuts that you can see the peanuts and it says salted peanuts on the front. And on the back it says, warning, this product might contain peanuts and may have been processed in a factory that processes nuts. I'm thinking there has to be a story somewhere. So, somehow or another, I, I don't know what the story is. Um, parents, how many parents do we have here this morning? Or grandparents even? Well, praise God. It's a noble profession. I love it. It's one of the greatest joys in my life. But at, when your kids are small, isn't it astounding when you have to tell them things that you assume go without saying? But they don't go without saying. The way it feels like that to us is somebody taught us that long before we were even old enough to remember. And, and a lot of times these rules that we see in the Bible, they just seem so bizarre and so specific. You just know there has to be a story. There has to be something going on that we just don't understand. For example, Deuteronomy 14.21 has several in it. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. There's probably a story there, right? Yeah, can we have the roadkill? No, no. You may give it to the sojourner who's within your towns. 
You may, he may eat it or you may sell it to a foreigner. There has to be a story in that one. Like, why would that be something that God just said, this might be a good idea? I think he's saying, oh, I guess you may. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. What? Actually, that, that thing, I'm sure that means something that we just can't even imagine what it means. And that little phrase is actually where a lot of the kosher laws come from, where you can't cook meat and milk in the same place even, let alone a young goat in its mother's milk. Anyhow, here's the point. This is what I hope that we can do. A lot of times when we look at God's moral boundaries, we look at all the rules in the Old Testament, we get so derailed so easily and we start going, why would that possibly be wrong? Why is that important? That is just weird. And we get just completely distracted by it all, right? Am I the only person that this happens to? I think the most important thing that we need to remember is that all of this in one way or another, it points to God, it points to Jesus, and it points to what he's trying to do in us. Even the most obscure and weird stuff in the Old Testament. And most of it you can actually see if you just try it all. Most of it are clear symbols. For example, the tabernacle. The tabernacle was this tent back then, and I'm sure you've heard of this at some point, but it had such deep symbolism. They didn't have drones or airplanes. They couldn't get up high. If they could have, they could have looked down and they would have seen a shape the way God told them to camp in four directions with that in the center. Does that look familiar to you guys? If it doesn't look up to the center here, you might see a similar shape. For those online, welcome, by the way, that's a cross. It looks a lot like that. Anyway, I, I, I find significance in that. Some people think that was a coincidence. I don't know. But here's what I know. If you zoom back in and you look in the tabernacle, you can squint just a little bit and see the cross. But without squinting at all, you can see the symbolism. Let's walk through that one more time really quickly. First off, you come to the sin altar. First thing you come to is the sin altar or sometimes called the brazen altar. And nobody could approach God unless there was a blood sacrifice. And that's where we're starting here this morning. Most of the people, everybody who wasn't a priest in this era, they could only even come close to this part where God's presence was if they brought an animal to sacrifice. And you're standing in line and seeing all these animals being sacrificed in front of you. And you know the animal that you're holding or leading is going to have to go through that on your behalf. That's pretty traumatic. And there's a reason. There's a reason it was traumatic. But a little closer, just the priest could go to the next spot. And that was a basin. A basin of water. And all day long, to cleanse themselves... As they approached the other part, the most holy place, they would dip their hands in water. We'll talk more about that imagery there next week. But that's so deep as well. Uh, the, The idea of water and cleansing and transitions and major moments and rebirth all being tied together throughout the scriptures is so huge. Again, we'll go there next time. But then you go further and then you've got this holy place and everything in that little spot Represented God's provision and God's presence. And then you got the most holy place or the holy of holies. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where once a year they would pour blood on the the lid, which was called the mercy seat. 
And that was this, this really special spot. We'll talk more over the next couple of weeks. And hopefully you've heard of all of this before. But that represented the presence of God. And God was somehow extra present there. Just like he's extra present now in this era whenever we meet in his name. Is everybody tracking so far on this? So these are huge symbols that go all the way through. And when we understand the significance of them, all of the stuff that God tells us either makes more sense or at least is more doable. We can get our hearts and our minds and our, our bodies around it. We can actually do something about it. But that brazen altar, let's go back there and kind of zoom in on that just a little bit more. What would happen is they would actually not only just one after another slaughter these animals, but as they'd slaughter them, they'd drain their blood and they'd take some of it and they would sling it against the side of the altar. And people are watching this all day long. It's a very violent, very disturbing image. But it points toward repentance. It points toward just how violent and broken sin is to God. Just how much it hurts his heart. It's really easy for us sometimes to not get it, right? It's really easy for us to justify our own sin and not understand why God would even consider it wrong. But this, this image day after day after day in the time of Israel really got home. No, he takes this very seriously. And so should you. You should feel a little bit sick when you think about sin. You should feel a little bit nauseous. It, it shouldn't be okay. But it also points to, if you meet God on his terms, there's forgiveness. When you repent, when you say, I'm not going to claim my perspective is better than God's. I'm going to take his perspective on the whole thing. There's a possibility of forgiveness. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Again, this is one of many places says everything in the Old Testament points toward Jesus and what he did. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Big word, redemption. It means either buying someone's freedom, almost like paying bond or just paying the bond off at at prison, uh, purchasing someone who's been sold as a slave, buying them out of slavery, paying a ransom. It's that kind of an idea. There's another, more big words coming. Here we go. Through the redemption is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's a word that we don't use anywhere but church these days. We rarely use it in church. The same word, you may not know this, but the same word and sometimes phrases that are translated as propitiation in some translation, they also are atonement in other places. And it's literally the exact same term as that mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It's the exact same word. And translators have to kind of guess which one they're talking about at different times. But the idea is, this is something that is given to pay our debt. There's a real debt that's there, and it has to be paid. Let's finish this verse, and we'll keep going. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Remember the guardrail idea? Again, what God is trying to do is not just saying, hey, I'm really good and everything else is really bad, but he's, he's not just just, he's the justifier. The rules that he gives us, the ideas he gives us, the patterns he gives us, the symbols he gives us, is trying to help us find our way to where he is. Trying to help us find the right way. And this symbol of blood is such a disturbing one. That's why we're kind of starting with Another reason is because that's always where God starts when he's explaining salvation. There has to be payment in blood somehow or another, life for life. The wages of sin is death. You lose your life. Any of that sound familiar? It's all throughout. Here's just a kind of, here's kind of a quick montage, if you will, of some of the places where we see this image. Leviticus 17, 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. In other words, in their minds, in their culture, there was, the blood and life were pretty much the same thing. I think that's why all of us, all, all humans that I know of, some more than others, some just pass out when they see the tiniest bit of blood, but we're all a little disturbed when we see blood, Right? You see blood, even on a movie or something, you see a body laying there and there's blood starting to pool out and you're just, there's something just wrong. Because we know that there's life in the blood and if all that blood comes out, you're not gonna have life anymore and there's something horrific about that. In Genesis 4, this is the first murder that ever happened. And I love that even in moments like this, God is such a creative communicator. I love the way he uses almost poetry and word pictures all the time, even in a moment like this. He's basically just screaming at Cain. I don't know if he's literally screaming, but he's angry, he's hurt, he's upset. But listen what he says. The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. After the flood, as God's making a whole new covenant with mankind, just kind of wipe the slate clean, starting over. He tells Moses that he's allowed to eat meat now, makes a few other things. And you see this blood thing happen again. It's even clearer here. He says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. In other words, you have to drain the blood out before you eat the meat. And that was a symbol to remind Noah and all of the people that would come after him. There's life in the blood. This blood thing is an important symbol. He goes on. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So again, he's reminding him there's more than just the biology going here, but the blood represents it. We're going kind of fast here through some deep stuff. Are you guys tracking? Is this good? We all right? Okay. We've got to keep going because we're getting to the stuff that we can actually do something about. But you see it again, one more example. In the story of Joseph, when his brothers sell him into slavery, as if that weren't bad enough, their first plan was to actually kill him. But his brother Reuben says, let's not shed blood. Somehow they knew that was even more horrific. Somehow that just couldn't be done. Leviticus 1, 5. Now we're back to the altar. 
Okay? Just imagine this scene. You're standing in line. You've got an animal in your arms. Then he, that's the priest, shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. I don't know about you, but I'd get sick every time I went to worship, if that's how it was every time. It'd just just be so heartbreaking. But that's kind of the point. I think God knows that we need to sometimes see something or hear something or feel something for it to make sense. Here's, a, here's an example. Let's say that um, you're walking down the street and somehow or another, this is a pretend story. It's kind of like one of the parables of Jesus, except not near as good because I made it up. Okay. So, so, but, but, but I'm, I'm trying to tell you a pretend story to make a point. Okay? You're going down the street, there's nobody around, all the stores are open, but there's just nobody. And you look down and there's a $100 bill laying on the ground. And you look around and there's nobody around at all. Most of us, hopefully, would have a better idea than to just pick it up and take it. But I don't think any of us would agree that that's a sin, that it would be wrong to pick something else up that you found. Right? Are we okay so far? It's not evil. It's not sick. It's not some perverted, gross thing to pick something up that you found that was valuable. But now, let's go a little further. You're looking around. There's still nobody around, but the stores are open, and you go, maybe this is a blessing from God. And you walk right into the store, and you spend all $100 right then. We can make some arguments. I'm sure some of us have some opinions, but it would be really hard to call that a sin, right? That's not evil. That's not gross. That's not terrible and mean and wrong. You're not, you're not feeling guilty. You walk out with your arms full of whatever you paid $100 for. It's not much these days, but you've got it in your arms. And you walk out and suddenly you see somebody, an old woman, ratty clothes, crying and frantically looking around on the dirt close to where you found that $100 bill. Now you feel something. Now you start thinking, wait a second. Maybe that thing that felt so good to me and so naturally, maybe even a blessing from God, maybe that's not okay. Maybe there was something better. Maybe I should have asked a few questions. Are you with me on this? And that's why God did some of these things in the Old Testament, especially in in, in Jesus' own crucifixion in the New Testament. Because he needed us to know this is horrific. This is not okay. Not only are we supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, but when we sin, something in your soul dies. Something in your heart and in your mind gets broken and twisted. When you sin, some of the strength that you could have, some, some of the ability and power to live in a really powerful way and make the world better, gets taken away. Not because necessarily that you and that one thing you just chose to do is so evil and so terrible, but because you missed what God had for you. It's that guardrails idea again. Does this make sense? Here's the second. So here's the first thing. I'm sorry. This is still the first thing, and then we're going to move faster. The first thing Christ does, if you'd say this out loud, Christ's blood pays our debt. And all of these symbols, the idea of blood throughout, the, the blood of Christ, and even communion that we take every single Sunday to remember, it's, it's, it's kind of dark, isn't it? 
The blood of Christ, the broken body of Christ were washed clean in the blood. If people didn't know what was going on, they'd say, what are these people doing? But we get it. But I'm telling you, when we understand what God is trying to show us here, it makes a little bit more sense. It, It helps us get why he uses these symbols. And Jesus paid our debt with the one thing that God had used since creation to represent life itself. Blood is life. So Jesus paid our lives off with blood. And that's scary and that's horrific. And it makes us realize just how terrible our sin is. If you're writing down these answers, the next two words are all and one. And the sentence goes like this. We all owe God more than anyone can pay. But he has provided one way for us to start over. This has always been how it is. Uh, Dr. Tony Evans is one of my favorite authors and speakers. He tells a, a cool story about a guy. <clears throat> I believe he made that one up, honestly, but it's a good story, so I'm going to share it with you. He, he, this guy has been days without water, lost in the woods, and he finally stumbles into a clearing, and he sees one of those old pumps like that. Uh, one of those old pumps that you can pump, but nothing's coming out. And he's frantically looking around. There's a little shelter. And inside are some empty containers and one jug that has, it's totally full to the brim with water and has a note on it. It says, this pump will work, but you have to prime it. And you can't drink any of this water. You have to put all of it in the pump. And if you do that, it'll work. If you don't, it won't. So he's got a choice. Do I just drink what's in the jug? Or do I trust this? Whoever this is that wrote me the note, what do I do? Well, the guy makes the choice to pour it in the pump. He starts pumping. Nothing happens at first. But then he hears that wonderful, sloshy, gurgly sound of water, unlimited water. And he fills up all those containers. And you can bet he refills that jug and makes sure that note is really obvious for the next person in line. That's exactly how the gospel works. God gives us one way. And the only way it works is if we completely trust Jesus. We put all our eggs in one basket. Does anybody even say that anymore? We put all our cheese on the same sandwich. I I don't know. We put all our stuff in the same truck. I, I, I don't know what I should say. But we give him everything. The whole thing belongs to him. We trust him completely or not at all. As Tony Evans says, we need to prime the pump. Priming the pump means that's where we need to, when he sees us repent, when he sees us give him everything, when he sees us say, I had a debt and it had to be paid and you paid it, here's everything I have left, what you, I'm yours. That starts the process of God totally changing us. That's why so many other people talk about repentance. John the Baptist's first messages went something like this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. When Jesus Christ himself showed up, he said, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Because here's the second thing Christ's blood does for us. It makes us new. 
Would you say that out loud? If you're writing stuff down, write it down, but let's say it together. Christ's blood makes us new. It's like a blood transfusion or a bone marrow transplant. When Christ's blood comes into contact with us, when we prime that pump, when we give him everything, when we come to him on his terms, whether we like it or not, even though it kind of makes us a little bit sick to realize just how bad our sin is and just how big our debt is, no matter what, when we throw it all at his feet, something amazing happens and he actually starts to change us from the inside out. And I believe that's why Jesus said this, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. It's not that he's not happy with all of them, he is. And day after day, there's a lot of joy. But I remember when our fourth son was born. So thankful, so what a blessing to have the children that I have. I love every single one of them. We already had three It was great. We were doing well. But when the fourth one came, there was, oh my gosh, it got even better. And there was so much rejoicing. And the boys are going, just imagine wrestling with four. Just imagine jumping on the trampoline with four. Are you with me? And and it was. It was different. It made a difference. It's not that the people that weren't there already don't matter. It's there's even more. And all this same good stuff is going to happen with a bigger team. How cool is that? That's why there's so much rejoicing in heaven when somebody experiences all this for the first time. First time, this whole gospel, the whole idea of not just the Old Testament that pointed to Jesus, but Jesus himself, and not just the teachings of Jesus, but the story of Jesus that he had died and rose again. And all of this now is available to us. First time that whole thing got presented was on Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2. And the people who had actually helped kill Jesus are panicking like nobody's business because they realize they've blown it beyond all ways to blow something. And they say, what can we possibly do now to be saved? Peter said to them, repent. Does that sound familiar? Come to God on his terms. Throw it all at his feet. Understand, yes, your sin is really, really bad. It's horrific. It's gross. It's disturbing. It's nauseating. And yet, if you come to him on his terms, there's hope. There's hope of forgiveness. Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And that means literal baptism in water. It also means metaphorical immersion into everything that God is Offering. We'll talk more about that next time. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. It's that prime the pump idea. It's, it's Jesus that makes any of this matter or powerful at all. Otherwise, it's just us saying prayers to someone and getting dunked in water and whatever other, other things. If it's just us, it's nothing. If it's in the name of Jesus, it's something. Is this making sense? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And all all the Jews would have understood, oh my gosh, for the first time, we're walking past the brazen altar. 
we're dipping ourselves with the priests in that basin and we're walking into the holy place. And not only that, we're gonna get to go into the holy of holies where the actual presence of God is because the actual presence of God is the Holy Spirit. And he's gonna come to live in me. I'm gonna be the holy of holies. This is totally different. This is totally new stuff. This is crazy and awesome all at the same time. Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. See, when God looks at all of us, he sees so much more than we see in ourselves or see in each other. And it's kind of like what Michelangelo said. I've heard several versions of this. There's actually a quote here, an actual quote I got from Dr. Erwin, uh, Raphael McManus. But according to him, these are the words of Michelangelo. In every block of marble, I see a statue as plain as though it stood before me, shaped and perfect in attitude and action. I have only to hew away the rough walls that imprison the lovely apparition to reveal it to the other eyes as mine see it. I think this is also very important to keep in mind. When all these laws that God gives us, these rules God gives us, the things he says, say yes to, and I mean it, say yes, do it. And the things he says, say no to, and he says, I mean it, don't do it. When we realize that what he's really trying to do is give us guardrails that keep us on track to somewhere amazing, somewhere we can't even imagine. When we realize that he's actually trying to change us into something beautiful that he already sees, but the rest of us just see a big rock. When we get his heart, when we get why some of the things are intentionally disturbing and gross. If I was creating my own religion, I wouldn't put a bunch of stuff about blood and rebirth and all that stuff in it. That's kind of weird at first. But once you get what it's really all about, it's, it's beautiful. Here's the last one. Christ's blood flows through us. Christ's blood flows through us. Would you say that with me? Christ's blood flows through us. See, when something's dead, its blood just kind of pools out and that's it. That's why it's so scary. But when something's alive, the heart keeps pumping and the blood keeps going and that's what keeps everything going. The blood goes, I'm not a scientist or a doctor, but bear with me, I think most of us know how this works. The blood goes out and it takes all the fresh, good stuff to all of your body and it energizes everything, fuels the muscles, makes everything possible. And then it comes back and it brings all the waste and everything back to the organs and back to the heart to get pumped again. And then it just does that again, over and over and over again, all day long. When we're alive, when we're connected to Christ, when we as the body of Christ have the blood of Christ flowing through us, We're constantly being energized and purified all at the same time. The apostle John says it like this. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There's so many other metaphors where Jesus uses these creepy ideas, blood and stuff. 
Here's one more, and, and just we're going to wrap this up here, so please just bear with me. But here's one more, and again, try to see through it. Think about what blood means. It means life. Think about what flesh means. All those, as Jesus said this. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Are you serious, Jesus? Cannibalism? That's what it sounds like. That's weird. But that's not what he's talking about. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. What in the world? Well, what happens when you eat something? It becomes part of you, right? And I don't know if you know this or not. Again, I'm not a huge scientist, but our bodies remake themselves cell by cell every couple of years. And it makes it out of whatever we eat and whatever we drink, which is why we need to eat and drink healthy things. Because otherwise, your whole body's made of donuts. <laughs> are, are you with me? Like it's somehow or another, if you don't have enough protein, you're not going to get healthy muscles because protein, anyway, that's way off track. But Jesus, here's what he's saying. He said, you've got to take me in. He's using this symbol in every possible way he can. The life of the blood, the life of Jesus itself, you take that in. The body of Christ himself, the very presence of him, the tangible presence of Jesus, the tangible acting presence of Jesus, you take that in and it becomes part of you. Little by little, every part of you becomes him. Little by little, all the little other pieces of rock fall away and all that's left is something that looks like Jesus. That's why communion is so important. Paul says the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the Body and blood of the Lord. If we don't take this seriously, we're missing all of this stuff. This beauty and this disturbing stuff and all of it, we're missing the whole thing. If we take this seriously, we understand how it's actually going to work. How we're really going to get changed and become like Jesus. Dr. Tony Evans says, as a member of the kingdom, your identity is all tied up and wrapped up with Christ. There should be no way to talk about you and not talk about him. That's the most eloquent way I've ever heard it said to just say that the life of Jesus needs to flow through it. Every single part of what we do needs to be him because his blood has cleansed us. His blood has washed away our debt. His blood now fuels us and continues to purify us. His blood is what energizes us. The very life of Jesus Christ himself is what gives us the power to live and to become like him. And one of these days, we're gonna see this. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language 
and people and nation. Paul talks about communion being participation in all this. You know how we participate? All of this and also the Great Commission. We go into all the world. We make disciples of all nations. We baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We teach them to obey all the things Christ commanded us. And he is with us always to the very end of the age. Isn't that beautiful? Even that is one more time. We're back in the tabernacle. One more time. We're back at the cross and the empty tomb. It, It just all fits. I don't know how God is calling you to respond this morning, but you need to do that. As always, when we stand and we sing together, we're asking you to make a choice in his direction. And if that needs to be public, we always have somebody at the back and somebody at the front, whichever is more more comfortable to you. We want to pray with you. We want to let you just come forward and pray by yourself if we want. We want to give you a chance to give your life to Jesus. If somehow you've been following Jesus, but you never realized how important baptism is, that's always, it's always heated. It's always clean. There's, there's fresh clothes up there. If you'd like to officially join the church, we don't require that, but we love it. And we say, yeah, welcome to the team. It's pretty much that easy. If there's anything at all that God is telling you to do, even if you just keep it private, would you make that choice right now? Would you participate in the blood of Jesus as we stand and as we sing together?